Morning once again. You can open your Bibles to Acts chapter 11. Uh, we'll be in verses 19 to 26, uh, and we will uh, get there shortly. But uh, first, let me let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we uh, thank you for our worship this morning. Uh, we thank you for the deep, deep, lo- deep, deep love of Christ. And God, we thank you for the early church uh, that shared the deep, deep love of Christ. Uh, and Lord, spread it through the world so that we could receive it and know it and hear it today. Uh, God, I pray that uh, your spirit will uh, work through these words this morning. God, may we hear your word. Um, and Lord, may we be drawn to uh, worship you more and be more committed to your gospel and proclaiming it in our lives. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So most things in life... Um, Things tend to work better if if you keep them simple. Um, so I'm, I'm not sure uh, if it's around as much today, but there there used to be a, an acronym or a slogan uh, called KISS, Keep It Simple Stupid. Um, so the, this was developed by, actually, from what I've briefly researched from probably not very credible resources, um, the U.S. Navy in the 1960s. Uh, so the engineers of the Navy who designed jet aircraft actually uh, came up with a slogan because they had to design aircraft that was simple enough for people, mechanics to repair while on the field and possibly while enduring combat. Uh, so they had to keep these systems as simple and proficient as possible. Uh, so the principle states that most systems work best if they are kept simple rather than complicated. So simplicity must be the goal in the design. Fewer the moving parts, the better the design. It's clear why this took off with the Navy. But there's there's other areas in life where this principle is applied. So uh, Apple, with the way that they design their phone products and their computers and everything, their their whole idea behind it is they, they want it to be as simple as possible to use. Now, if you ask somebody who's a PC user, they will think it's super complicated, but Apple users will say the opposite. But that's, that's their goal. They want to keep things simple. The best-run businesses have sets of principles or, or core values that they run their business by, and they, they stick to those core values, and they don't deviate from them. But I think the, the problem that often occurs is, is we do tend to deviate from that simplicity, we set up rules and restrictions and guidelines and steps for people to jump through that make systems much more complicated because we think that we are improving our product, but in reality, we are hindering our people from doing, doing their work because we are making the systems so complicated. I think we tend to do the same thing in the church. We tend to do the same thing with the mission of the church. We, we make the mission of the church very complicated. That we have to do all these different things. We have to run all these different programs. We have to uh, have the perfect evangelistic strategy and children's ministry strategy. And we have to bring people into the church. And there's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of books that have been written on these things. And at the end of the day, what you get is this very complicated and complex system that makes the mission and the ministry of the church seem overwhelming and difficult. But I think in actuality, our, 
our mission is quite simple. And I think we'll see the simplicity of that mission in Acts chapter 11, verses 9 to 16, that that we don't need this complex set of systems to work together to accomplish the mission of the church. If we look at the early church, they had very simple guidelines and very simple things that they did. But the thing is with Acts, is Acts is is a story of the development of the church. Uh, So in order to really understand what Luke, the writer of Acts, is doing in this passage, I think we we need to look at the the events that led up to Acts chapter 11. And even beyond that, I think we need to somewhat go back to what Nathan, Pastor Nathan, talked about last week with the the story and the narrative of Scripture. So I I want to summarize a little bit of that and, and pick up a little bit of the story of Scripture, the narrative uh, that he told last week, uh, and show how that that relates to the mission to the nations and the mission to the Gentiles and the mission that happens in the book of Acts. So, Nathan began the story last week with uh, the story of Scripture begins with creation. God is establishing his kingdom. He creates everything. He rejoices in how good it is. And then he creates the pinnacle of creation, humans, to rule, to rule creation, to worship their creator. But then very quickly, uh, our storyline develops conflict, develops difficulty. So we, as, as God's vice regents, as the ones who rule over creation, who are created to worship him and obey him, reject his rule, and we worship ourselves, and we end up worshiping the creation. That's what Paul talks about in Romans chapter 1. So that's the fall. We rebelled against our king. So from that point in the story, what we see is that our our king develops this plan to to set things right, to to restore creation. And the story from Genesis 3.15 through Revelation 21 is, is God's plan of redemption, God's plan of restoration. And this pri- the primary outfolding of this story begins in Genesis 12. There's other times where God redeems. He redeems with the flood and, and other areas between Genesis 3 and 11. But the primary story of Scripture starts in Genesis 12 with this promise to Abraham that he is going to, to call Israel to begin to set things right, to undo what has happened in the fall. But what I think we learn if we uh, look closely at the storyline of Israel is that this restoration is not just about Israel. There's this plan where God is going to redeem the world. He's going to redeem the creation. He's going to redeem the nations. And we see that right away in the promise he gives to Abraham in Genesis 12, verse 3. God says, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you... All the families of the earth will be blessed. So Abraham and his descendants were chosen, but it's not for their sake alone. It's for the sake of the nations, for the sake of all the peoples of the earth, Jew and Gentile alike. So we know and we heard the next part of the story next week. Israel, uh, after this calling, 
gets into this cycle of faithfully following the Lord and falling back from the Lord. So it's like they always are consistently taking one step forward and two steps backwards until eventually they end up removed from the land at the end of the Old Testament, uh, with some people kind of coming back to Jerusalem. But God promises restoration. That's what the the prophets write about. But within that promise of restoration, there's this promise of restoration for creation and for the nations, for the Gentiles, for the world. Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 36, there's this promise of a new heart and a new spirit that God is going to put within his people. So it's clear the the prophets do pronounce a certain judgment on Israel for their falling away from the Lord, but they always give them hope that God is going to restore them. And if we we look closely, there's this quiet stream through the prophets that, that I don't think Israel got, and I don't think even the disciples understood it till late, where God has this plan of redemption for the nations as well. So, Uh, We see this stream in many different places, but I'll note a few. Isaiah 56, verse 3 through 8. Uh, Isaiah says, Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, The Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbath, who choose the things that please me and hold fast to my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name Better than sons and daughters, I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. This is God talking to the nations, to the foreigners. And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. Jesus actually references this when he goes into the temple and causes a ruckus there. The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. There's this idea of this restoration of the nations. In Psalm 67, 1 through 4, it says, May God be gracious to us. And bless us and make his face shine upon us, that your way may be known on the earth, your saving power among all nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God, let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon the earth. So the peoples have hope and praise for God because he is their redeemer as well. And then lastly, and I think clearly, Isaiah 2, 1 through 5, is that the word that Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem, it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills, and all the nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, come Let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go the law, and the word of the Lord is from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations, and shall decide disputes for many peoples. 
and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. For God has this mission for the Gentiles to come and worship him, for them to be restored. But I think the question is for, for Israel during this time, and I don't know if they even asked it, is, is how? How are these nations going to be restored? Because when you, when you get to the New Testament, it's still, uh, the Jews are very Jewish-centric. They, they do a poor job being a light to the nations. But then Jesus comes on the scene, and he, he also has this stream of thought that, that the nations are going to receive this restoration. He makes this shift, and you, and you start to see how intentional God is going to pursue the nations. So in Matthew 8, 10 to 12, a Roman centurion shows great faith, and Jesus says, Truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west, so those outside of Israel, and recline at the table, so eat with fellowship with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So Jesus is telling the Jews at that time that the nations are going to come. They're going to be a part of this. They are going to receive restoration and reconciliation and salvation. And in Matthew twelve fifteen to 21, Matthew quotes Isaiah 42 to show that Jesus will proclaim justice to the Gentiles and that the Gentiles will hope in the name of Christ. Mark 16, the gospel is to be, to be proclaimed to the whole creation. Luke, when he sees, uh, when he gives the picture of Simeon in the temple receiving Jesus as a baby, Simeon says, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you prepared in the presence of all people, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. So Jesus is the light of revelation to the Gentiles, to the nations. And ultimately, Jesus clearly shows his mission for the nations in Matthew 28, verse 19, where he says, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. For behold, I am with you always to the end of the age." So the disciples are to make disciples of all nations. So we get these glimpses of the, of the magnitude of, of God's mission to the world. Of God's mission not just to Israel, but outside of Israel as well, so that they might receive salvation. And when we get to the book of Acts what we start to see is the, the early church trying to work this out. So, so when you get to Acts, you have all these disciples of Jesus, the 11 plus Matthias that they add because of Judas, and, and they're all Jews. And so far, it's a, it's a very Jewish-centric mission. But as Acts works itself out, you start to see them trying to say, well, well how does this work for Gentiles to be included in the people of God? How does this work for the mission to go forth to the peoples? And I think as they try to work that out, we get a picture of the mission of the church. And we see how the apostles and the early Christ followers 
implemented that mission. So this is where we are going to spend uh, the rest of our time in, in talking about Acts and the development of this um, and the mission and the purpose and the goal of the church that we see illustrated, I think, perfectly in Acts eleven nineteen to 26. And what Acts 11 does is it, it really shows us the simplicity of our mission. It's, it's not complex. It's also not that it's simplistic or that it's easy to do, but it's, it's simple. So our mission is to build churches and to grow churches. Our mission is to plant churches, and we need to grow those churches and those people into faithful and committed disciples of Jesus Christ. And the way we do that is very simple, as in not complex. So let's look at Acts 11, verses 19 to 26. Luke says, Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. So Acts 11, we are, we are at this point where you, where you see the, the mission uh, really exploding among the nations. This is, this is the start of the rest of the book of Acts because that's what... Uh, in, in two chapters, we're going to get to the Apostle Paul, where he is going to go to all of these churches around the Mediterranean and share the gospel with the Gentiles and the Jews and kings, as God said that he would in uh, Acts chapter 9. But in order to see the magnitude of what this passage does, uh, telling a lot of stories this morning or showing the sequence a lot, we, we need to look at the development of this in Acts how they got to this point, because I think that's, that's really significant for what Luke is emphasizing. So Acts, Luke in Acts records um, a very specific sequence that he develops um, based off of Jesus. So at the very beginning of Acts, the, Jesus promises that the disciples will receive the Holy Spirit. And he says, you will receive power, this is Acts chapter 1, verse 8. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So that, that sequence is something that Luke is developing and showing how the gospel expands and goes forth to the ends of the earth. Ending with Paul in Rome where he's going to appeal to and share the gospel with kings. So after the Holy Spirit comes in the beginning of Acts 2... 
the apostles really are on fire for the gospel, for the work of the gospel. And you see this especially with Peter. It's, it's really interesting because in, in the gospels, Peter is kind of this uh, really shaky character. He can be really all about Christ. Like he, he says, well, Jesus, you are, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And then like 10 verses later, Jesus says to him, get behind me, Satan. So, so Peter is this unruly character who can have really great boldness for Christ, but can also be really timid and deny him three times and run away from him. But after Peter receives the Holy Spirit, there is no wavering on his part. There's no wavering in his commitment to boldly preaching the gospel. So Peter gives the sermon to the men of Judea and Jerusalem. And that day, the Bible says in Acts 2, that 3,000 souls were saved and added to the church. And then Luke, uh, as he does in other places, describes the the fellowship of the believers and says that uh, they were committed to the apostles' teaching, to eating together, to fellowship, and to praying. And Peter and John continue this mission, sharing the gospel throughout Jerusalem. They get arrested on multiple occasions. And when they get arrested, it's really interesting. The believers don't pray that they would be uh, freed from being persecuted or that they would stop getting arrested. They are like, hey, even though we're getting arrested, God, please give us a boldness to continue to preach the word. That's the believer's prayer. So, so far, the gospel is limited to Jerusalem and to the Jews for the most part. But a key part in the story of Acts happens, and it's actually referenced in Acts chapter 11, uh, with the ministry of of the seven uh, servants, um, and and then the martyrdom of Stephen. So you have this issue that arises within the church where the the Hebrew-speaking Jews um, are not dispersing the food equally. So so the Hebrew widows are receiving ample amount of food but the Greek-speaking Jews, Jewish widows, are not receiving food. So they bring this to the uh, apostles, and they're like, well, we have to continue preaching the word, but you appoint seven men who will oversee this ministry and make sure things get dispersed fairly. It's really interesting to know that uh, the gospel comes into these uh, intense cultural barriers like this is this is amongst this is Jew to Jew just some of them speak primarily Hebrew and some of them speak primarily Greek and there's dissension within the church that, that threatens the mission of the gospel but the gospel overcomes that and the people serve and and Stephen becomes this great hero of the faith who is one of these men so the gospel continues to grow. And Stephen, who is a man who's described as being full of faith, the Holy Spirit, grace, and power, is arrested, and he preaches the word to the council, and he's ultimately killed for following Christ. Right after this, we start to see the expansion of the gospel. In Acts 8, verse 1, it says, this is immediately following Stephen's death, says, and Saul approved his execution, and there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. So the apostles stay rooted in Jerusalem. 
But the gospel starts to scatter. It starts to reach. The, the mission to the nations is beginning. It goes from Jerusalem and Judea to also being in Samaria. So, so from this point, Philip, who is also one of those seven servants, Philip the evangelist, goes to Samaria and starts to share the gospel with Samaritans. He proclaims Christ in Acts 8.4, and they receive the gospel and are saved. And Peter and John are then sent to Samaria to disciple that church, to root them in the Holy Spirit and to grow the church. <clears throat> so at that point, the gospel has moved from Jerusalem and Judea to now churches being formed and discipled in Samaria. And then the Lord appears to Philip while he's in Samaria and is like, hey, go down to Gaza. Then he gets to Gaza and there's an Ethiopian eunuch on his chariot who just happens to be reading Isaiah 53. So then Philip goes to the chariot and from Isaiah 53 preaches Christ to him and he gets saved and gets baptized while he's on his way back home to Ethiopia. So now the gospel has gone from Jerusalem and Judea to Samaria and to Ethiopia, to the Gentiles. The gospel is expanding. The gospel is working in the world. It's expanding. So after this, Luke takes a little bit of a break in the storyline and goes to Saul, the conversion of Saul. So he on his road to Damascus to persecute Christians. Jesus appears to him, blinds him, and he goes into Damascus, and God speaks to Ananias, telling him to go and lay his hands on Saul. And Ananias is scared because he knows that Saul is coming to kill him, um, or at least arrest him. But God reassures him, and Jesus says to him uh, that Saul is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. So you see, once again, an emphasis that this gospel is going to go forth. The gospel is going to work. The word of God is going to move forward because God is calling people to this mission. So Paul then preaches the gospel in Damascus. Barnabas takes him to Jerusalem, introduces him to the apostles. He preaches there, and then Saul disappears for a bit. And then you get to this story of uh, Peter and Cornelius. So Cornelius is this Roman centurion who uh, is probably some sort of a god fears, worships the God of the Jews, and, and God tells him to send for Peter because Peter has an important message for him. So Peter goes to Cornelius, preaches the gospel to him, and the Holy Spirit falls upon Cornelius and his household. So now, not just an Ethiopian eunuch of the Gentiles is saved, but a whole household of a prominent person in Rome is saved because the gospel has reached them. And then, the beginning of Acts chapter 11, the disciples still don't really understand what's happening. Peter goes back to the church, and they uh, kind of rebuke him for eating with the Gentiles, um, but then he explains what happens, and he tells them the story of Cornelius, how the Holy Spirit has come upon them, and the believers in Jerusalem conclude in Acts eleven eighteen, when they heard these things, they fell silent, and they glorified God, saying, then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. 
So Luke is showing how the gospel increased from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth. And we see that now the Jerusalem apostles and disciples are starting to learn what that means, that the gospel needs to go to the world. The gospel needs to go to the Gentiles. And in Acts 11, 19 to 26, we see the, the start of this explosion of the gospel in the world. So, verse 19 picks up from Acts 8, 1 through 2. Acts 8, 1 and 2 talked about how the believers were scattered to uh, Judea and Samaria, and, but the apostles stayed in Jerusalem. But here, Luke continues the story, shares a little bit more information, and says that those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch. So they're, they're moving up the Mediterranean coast towards Antioch. But the apostles still stayed in Jerusalem. I think it's important to note this. The people who went and were scattered were not your professional Christians. They weren't the disciples. They weren't the apostles. They weren't pastors. They weren't elders. They were people who heard the gospel in Jerusalem, believed it, and went probably back home. And as they were going back home, they were telling everybody about Jesus. They preached the word, is what Luke says here. They uh, preached the word. And then in verse 20, they preached the Lord Jesus. That's our mission. That's what Acts shows us. Our mission is simple, and that mission is to preach the word, to preach the Lord Jesus. That's how we build churches, and that's how we grow churches. That's how we plant churches. That's how we disciple others. That's how we evangelize. We preach the word. And we see this throughout Acts. This is all the apostles do is preach the word. After receiving the Holy Spirit, as we talked about, Peter preached. Those who believed initially in Acts 2 were committed to the apostles' teaching. Peter preaches to the people in Acts 3. Acts 4, the believers pray that they would have boldness to continue to speak the word. The apostles in Acts 4.33 were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. That's preaching Jesus and his resurrection. Acts 5, the apostles are arrested, and then an angel sets them free and commands them to continue to speak to the people the words of life. Stephen was arrested for speaking of Jesus of Nazareth. He then gets killed for preaching Christ. Philip proclaims Christ in Samaria and tells the Ethiopian eunuch the good news about Jesus. After Saul gets saved, he proclaims Jesus. Peter preaches the gospel to Cornelius, and here in Acts eleven nineteen and 20, they preach the word and preach the Lord Jesus. And then as we continue in the rest of Paul's ministry, he goes to all these cities and preaches the word. That is the theme of the expansion of the gospel. That is our simple mission, is to preach the word, to proclaim Jesus. We are to build churches because that's what these people were doing. They were going out and building churches in Phoenicia and Antioch and Cyprus. And they did so by preaching the word. So we don't have hoops to jump through. We don't have complex systems 
We don't have to be super eloquent. We don't need fame or education or prominence. We just need to know the gospel. We need to know who Jesus is and what Jesus did, and we need to tell people that. And the Lord is the one who does the work to redeem them. So the believers left Jerusalem and traveled north, and they preached the word and preached Jesus. And I think a major emphasis in Luke, or in Acts, is who they preached to. So verse 19 so this is the reason for the building up of the, the nations, of God's mission to the nations. As Luke emphasizes there, there's some who went and they only preached to the Jews. And that, that's good. That's, that's not a negative statement, I don't think. If you follow Paul's ministry, when he goes to these churches, the first place he goes is the synagogue to share Christ with the Jews, to share them and tell them that Jesus is the Messiah. So they preach to Jews. Jews need the gospel of Christ. But that's not Luke's full focus in his passage. What, what Luke wants to do is to show how the gospel is expanding, is exploding in the world. So his intention is to shift the focus to what happened in Antioch and what those believers did. So some of them who left Jerusalem when they came to Antioch spoke also to the Hellenists. So the Hellenists in this context is referring to non-Jews, to Gentiles, to the nations. So these people preached Christ to the Gentiles, and we see that the gospel is moving there. And this is where Luke stays for the rest of the passage, and I think it's, there's a reason for that. If you know the book of Acts, Antioch becomes a very key city. Antioch becomes a very key church. So Antioch has this planting of believers. In this passage, Barnabas goes and gets Saul to come and preach to them. And then later in Acts chapter 13, when Barnabas and Paul, who is Saul, leave to go on a, their first missionary journey, Antioch is the one who sends them out. Then they go on this journey, they come back to Antioch, and then Antioch in Acts 15 sends out both Barnabas and Paul on separate missions. And then Paul returns again, and Antioch sends him out on another mission. But it's not just a church that sends missionaries. Key events happen that develop the theology and the work of the church at Antioch. So it was in Antioch that Paul rebuked Peter for refusing to eat with and fellowship with Gentiles. You see where this emphasis of the Gentiles and the nations is central in Acts. And then they... Uh, then there's another conflict that happens there where they go back to Jerusalem to see, do, do the Gentiles have to follow Jewish customs if they believe in Christ? And they conclude no, but Antioch is the church that initiated all of this movement with the gospel. So the church had a major influence and impact on the explosion and expansion of the gospel. But it's not that these men did the work or that they were just super gifted evangelists and people were convinced of them. It's the Lord who is the reason for the growth. Verse 21 says that the hand of the Lord was with them and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. So the Lord is the one who gives success to the mission. Our mission is to preach the word. The Lord makes it have an impact. The Lord is the one who changes hearts, who causes people to believe and to 
turn them towards him. So, so turning to the Lord is repentance. Repentance is turning from your sin and turning to Christ and moving towards him, moving after him. So in this passage, in this verse, we have an essence of what people need to do when they hear the word of God preached. They need to believe and they need to repent. They need to turn. That's our goal in preaching the word. And the Lord is the one who makes that a reality, who makes that belief, makes that repentance real in a person's life. So we must be believers who build churches, who plant churches, who tell people about Christ. And I think there's a few implications of this. Number one, as I hope is clear, is we need to be preaching the word. And that's, that's not just me. That's not just Pastor Nathan. It's not just the elders. These people were not them. They weren't the apostles. They were your average Christians who got saved and went out and told people about what Christ has done in their life. They weren't even seven of the ones chosen to serve. They were your simple people. We don't even know their names, but they had been impacted by the gospel, and they are the church that ended up sending out the Apostle Paul. And the impact of that is incredible if you follow the history of the church. With the sending out of Paul, Paul took the gospel westward into Europe, which it going into Europe transforms Europe, which then transforms the United States of America, which gets the gospel to Michigan, which gets the gospel to the Woodhaven Bible Church. So, so this passage here where, where Antioch receives the gospel and the Lord working through them is the reason the gospel has come here where we can be a local body of believers. That's, that's the impact of what these believers did. So believers who don't have apparent qualifications can't have amazing impacts for the gospel if we would just preach Christ. That's our mission. It's not complex. And we need to preach Jesus to all different kinds of people groups. We live in a time in America when cultural differences are dividing the nation. But in the first century, Jews and Gentiles wouldn't even eat together. Jews thought of Gentiles as being unclean, and to touch them would make them impure. There was a point where Emperor Claudius kicked all the Jews out of Jerusalem. And the, and the crazy thing about this is everybody was okay with that in society. That was the way that it worked. So, so we can't say that the cultural barriers for the gospel are too great in America in 2017. They're not, because they were much worse in the first century. So, so we need to go out and we need to share the gospel with all peoples, because Paul says in Ephesians 2.14 that Christ has broken down the dividing wall of hostility. He is the one who has brought us peace the gospel breaks down barriers. It doesn't erase differences, but it lets us freely love those who are different from us. And we must be willing to share the gospel, to go out and tell the word to others. So the gospel pushes us to interact with people who have different races, different social classes, different beliefs, different jobs, whatever it is. They, the gospel is what does the work. And our interaction with them should result in preaching Christ because he is the one who brings us peace.
And we need to rely on the Lord. We are not responsible for the results, which is the greatest news in the world. We don't have to convince people of the gospel. All throughout Acts, it talks about how the gospel is increasing. The gospel itself grows. People don't grow the gospel. The gospel grows. That's, that's what it does. And the Lord does that work. So we need to trust the Lord. All we have to do is say, this is Jesus. This is what he did. And we need to repent and believe. That's our responsibility. And the Lord will make that take root in people's hearts. But our work doesn't stop with building and planting churches. We must grow churches. We must make disciples. So in verse 22, once the Jerusalem church hears about the gospel work in Antioch, they send Barnabas. And I don't think they send Barnabas to check up on them or to investigate them. I think they send Barnabas to disciple them, to grow them, to mature them in Christ. He was sent there to disciple the new believers, to help them grow, to be faithful followers of Christ. And when he gets there, he sees the grace of God. He sees that the work of God was evident. They had heard and received the true gospel. And it was increasing among them. Because they had received God's grace in receiving the gospel, he urges them to remain faithful in steadfast purpose. So Barnabas wants them to set their hearts on pursuing and following the Lord faithfully. So, so once you receive the grace of God, once you receive the gospel, your, your whole purpose in life changes. Everything shifts. So the, the purpose for them wasn't to have business success or to have prominence or to have uh, special social relationships, which were a huge deal and success in that society. For us, it's not to have the best business or the best golf game or the best video game score, if you're into that. It's not to have the best house or the best voice or the best talent. That's not our purpose. Our purpose changes. Our purpose is to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose, to be intent on him, have our hearts focused on him. And it's clear how the gospel impacted Barnabas. In verse 22, Barnabas could encourage them because of the type of man that he was. Or verse 23, or 24, I'm way behind. Uh, he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. This is the type of person we need to be if we want to be disciples of the Lord. And notice what it doesn't say of Barnabas. It doesn't say that Barnabas had a theological education, was a great speaker, knew Greek and Hebrew, Whatever qualification you want to give him, the Bible takes away any excuse we have to disciple people in Christ. We need to be upright. We need to be full of the Holy Spirit. How do we do that? We pray. Because praying shows that we are reliant on the Holy Spirit and we need his supernatural work in our lives. And we need to be full of faith in that God can move and God can work. And we need to be faithful to the Lord. So every one of us in here, if we have believed the gospel, we can do the encouraging work that Barnabas does. We can grow people in Christ. 
and that must be our pursuit. So Barnabas comes, disciples the church in Antioch to remain faithful to the Lord, and because of his work, more people are added to the Lord. And because of this, and I think specifically because of the situation that Antioch was in with Gentiles and Jews interacting together and the mission that God has given Saul becomes Paul, Barnabas goes to get Saul. He goes and seeks him out. He finds him. He brings him to come to the church. He looks intently for him. And when they get there, what do they do? They meet with the church and taught a great many people. So the preaching of the gospel doesn't stop at salvation. It doesn't stop at planting churches or making new believers. The preeminence of God's word remains constant throughout our life. So it's essential to our growth as a believer. So that's why we preach and teach. That's why it's good to be in a small group that studies God's word. That's why, men, it's good to go to the study that's going to be at Pastor Nathan's house on Wednesday nights. Because... We need to be sitting under God's word. That's why we have to be reading scripture on our own. Because it's essential to our life. It's essential to our growth. And the church in Antioch grew so much in their faithfulness to God's word that the people around them started to notice and had to label them as something because they were talking about them. So they called them Christians because they followed Christ. They had an allegiance to Christ. That's how impactful the word must be in us. So we must be growing churches. This mission has not changed. We must be discipling one another, and we must always remain a church and a people that preaches the word to one another. So Jared Wilson, to conclude, uh, did a talk at a conference that he called Returning to Christian Supernaturalism. I think might sound a little bit mystical and might scare um, some people in our tradition, but, but that, that's not really what he means. I, I think what he gets at is, is essential, and it's, it's really what Acts is teaching in Acts chapter 11. He, he goes through three different things, that, that we need to return to the supernaturality of prayer, we need to return the supernaturality of the Bible, and we need to return the supernaturality of the gospel. So prayer is supernatural, and, and we forget that. We, we, in place of prayer, we develop strategy and ideas, and we read books, and, and those things are good. The Spirit can use those books to help us and things like that, but ultimately, we need to trust that the Holy Spirit, through our prayers, will act because He is a supernatural God and can do things that we can never do or strategize for. So we need to recover the supernaturality of prayer and the belief that the Spirit works through prayer. That's why Barnabas had an effective ministry. The believers in this passage also preached the word. The Bible is supernatural. We don't need to gimmick people into believing the gospel. We don't need to gimmick people into hearing God's word. We don't need to gloss over God's word when we preach it. Because the Bible the Word of God does a supernatural work. And the people in this passage preach Jesus. So we need the supernaturality of the gospel. We need to tell people who Jesus is. And that word is powerful. That gospel is powerful to work and to act. 
So Jared Wilson concludes his talk and says, what if we return to these three things? Just do them and see what happens. What if we return the supernaturality of prayer, the word, and the gospel, and that's what we do as a church and in our personal lives and see how the gospel can have an impact on our world and on our community. So let us be a church with a very simple mission and a very supernatural God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we know you are a supernatural God and you can work and do amazing things. And Lord, we pray that you will give us the faith to trust you. And God, we pray that we will uh, not lose our commitment to the preaching of the word, but that it would actually grow more fervent. And God, I pray that we will be a praying people who is committed uh, to prayer because we know that you act through our prayers. And Lord, we pray that just the gospel will go forth from here and work and be powerful in, in many ways. And we pray in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen.